There is a wisdom that can produce the fruit of peace and the fruit of righteousness in our relationships. And just in case those fruits are lacking in your relationships, in your life, um, it's proof that you need to connect and subscribe to the wisdom that comes from heaven and with everything that it comes with. Now, of course, the letters of the New Testament were not written in chapters. So this thought that James has here about this contrast between um, heavenly wisdom and human wisdom or even demonic wisdom, this contrast doesn't stop here. He picks it up in chapter four, which we now come to today, where he looks at the practical outworkings or effects of operating by different kinds of wisdom, which is the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of man or the even demonic wisdom whose operating system or operating principle is self, right? And the wisdom of God whose operating principle is surrender. And there is a practical significant um, implication of each wisdom in the life of the believer. That's what James covers in chapter four. So let's get started. Um, we'll read from verse one to verse six of chapter four. Defreker? Okay. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that were in your members? You lost and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore waits, wants to be called a friend of the world wants, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thank you so much. Okay, so as usual, James has a few challenging thoughts for us here that we need to walk through, right? Or maybe I should actually start by asking us, what's, what challenges you the most here? Since the verses are just fresh in our minds, it will be good to hear so that as we talk about it, we kind of know what areas to expound more on. Can I say something? Mm-hmm. The part that says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And also the part that says, um, you do not have because you do not ask. Mm -hmm. I think those two phrases stand out for Yeah, very challenging, right? James yeah. is making some very interesting theological points here. Very, very interesting theologically. Okay. Any other thoughts? For me, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. Okay, because you ask amiss. So the second point, right? That yeah, Stephanie raised. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for those contributions. There's something from Mary here in the chat. Same here, verse three. Okay, so the asking part, I'm sure all of us have a backlog of unanswered prayer. So when we get to that point, it will be quite interesting to, to un unpack. Um, the first thing I want us to look at door from verse one is that James is writing to Christians. 
He's not writing to unbelievers. And this is where the theological um, exegesis, if you like, begins, right? Because he's saying that amongst these Christians, people who are saved, people who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, there are wars and fights. And he's wondering, where are they coming from? Now, anyone who understands New Testament theology, you know, will not find it hard to understand where wars and fights are coming from. Like, um, we have already seen in chapter three that this is coming from the sinful nature that all of us have. But the reason why James feels the need to pose the question again is that, like Paul has made, has um, repeatedly said in his letters that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, right? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a believer transforms him into a different person eternally, meaning that he has new impulses. He has a new pause of life. So naturally, the same way that his old man was able to produce wars and fights, if you like, his new man is supposed to produce the fruits of peace. And so that's what leads to the puzzle for James here, right? If it is true that you have the Holy Ghost and you have the life of God dwelling in you, the nature, the, the nature of the divine life dwelling in you, then where do wars and fights come from among you? And I don't know if you've related with people with any kind of closeness at all, starting from family members, um, you will not completely absorb yourself, right, of, of culpability in this, in this um, rhetoric question. Where is it coming from? He offers them an answer as a rhetoric question. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? So James is pointing us to the fact that even though they are believers, they have certain desires that are contrary to the will of God, contrary to the life of God. And those desires are at war. So the first thing we see here is that the primary cause of war externally or strife or conflict externally is war internally. Right? It's saying that the conflict you're having on the outside is coming from a conflict that you have on the inside. So, of course, James knows that these people have received a new nature, but his quarrel with them is that they are not living after the pattern of that new nature. And what's a simple way to put that is to say that they have the life of God and they have the human life in them. The life of God has a certain kind of wisdom, like we said earlier, that if you subscribe to that wisdom, it's going to produce the fruit of peace, like we saw in chapter 3. The life of the flesh, the life of the sinful nature has a certain wisdom. If you subscribe to that wisdom, it's going to produce wars and fights. And to help us um, drive it home, my question is, what is the wisdom, right, of the flesh, of the sinful nature? And what's the wisdom of the life of God? If a believer is this complex compound mixture of human life and divine life, and your life practically goes in the direction of the wisdom that you subscribe to, what are these two wisdoms? What are the principles of these two wisdoms? I may have hinted at it earlier, so that's a bit of a bonus there. Mary says the wisdom that's from above and the one from the earth. Yes, yeah, there are two wisdoms we have seen. But what is the driving force behind each, right? What's the principle behind each? each of them. I think I mentioned earlier that the principle behind the wisdom that is from heaven is the principle of surrender, right? And by surrender, we mean submission to God. And as long as 
that principle is lacking in your worldview, in the way that you frame the world, in the way that you frame your relationships with people in the world, as long as that view is lacking, your relationships would produce the opposite, which is wars and fights, because the principle of the wisdom of the human nature is a principle of self-seeking, right? Sin at its root is selfishness. Satan cannot make you sin except if he if he appeals to yourself, right? Your sense of self. And you can only fall into sin when you buy into the appeal to self. Self therefore becomes the foundation of sin. Of course, it's God who built himself into us, right? Initially. But the goal of self was not that we become engrossed in it, that self becomes the definition of our lives, that self becomes the driving force of our lives. Self was supposed to give us a kind of awareness about our identity, our uniqueness, our role, our calling, you know, in God's big picture. But what it has become is that it has become a prison, a trap for, for our desires. So there are two wisdoms, right? One functions by the principle of surrender and submission. The other functions by the principle of self-seeking. This is very important as we now move on in the next verses. He says, you lost and you do not have. You murder and you, cov and you covet and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war and you do not have because you do not ask. Interesting. So he challenges them here, right? And he's saying that this, because you have decided to live out of your self-seeking nature, several fruits are being produced that are not even worthy of you. He's saying that you are that you are full of lust, you're full of murder, you're full of covetousness, right? You're full of fighting and war just because of the kind of wisdom that you subscribe to. And this kind of wisdom can operate so stealthily, so subtly, right? So covertly in the life of a believer, as we're going to see subsequently, that it's necessary that we read um chapters like James chapter 4 to help us discern the activity of this kind of wisdom within us. And then he tells them that even though you, you, know, you are pursuing all these things, the reason you don't have it is because you don't ask. And of course, James goes right into the mind of his reader and um, quickly picks up the objection. Hey, we go to church every Sunday, right? We come to Bible study Every Tuesday or every Wednesday, we pray every morning. We've been asking, right? I'm sure each of us, if I, if I should ask you one by one, the things that you're trusting God for, you're not just trusting him silently for those things, right? You have been asking. But then he makes a profound point in verse 3, profound spiritual and theological point, which is that you ask and do not receive because you, you ask amiss. Amiss. You know, sin means to miss the mark, essentially. So if, if we put a goalpost <laughs> in front of you and ask you to kick the ball inside and you kick it outside, that's, that's uh, metaphorically what sin is, is to miss the mark. And so your prayer itself is missing the mark because your prayer is driven, known or unknown to you, by that inner self-seeking nature. It says that you may spend it on your pleasures, it's important to pause and think about that for a moment, right? How much of my prayer is me asking 
heaven to do my will? And how much of my prayer is me asking that the will of God in heaven will be done on, on earth in my life as it is in heaven, right? Those are very practical questions. Very, or rather, that's a very practical question with a very practical implication because James is saying here a few things. One is that the purpose of prayer is not to accomplish your desires. You were not made for your desires. You know, Jesus said that, that, um, that the Sabbath was made for man, but man was not made for the Sabbath. Your belly was made for you, but you were not made for your belly. And that's why you can fast. And that's why God invites you to fast because you're not supposed to be a creature that just lives to answer your belly whenever it calls you, right? You were not made for the pleasures. What is, what is it that you're seeking, right? Or we are seeking. You're seeking, I don't know, a spouse, or you're seeking a good house, or you're seeking a good job, or you're seeking a good education. The reason why it seems to tire is that in God's logic, you were not made for any of those things, right? Those things were rather made for you, not the other way around. So that the purpose of prayer, therefore, is not for you to get your will done, like we have said. It's not for you to get your pleasures accomplished, but rather to get his pleasures accomplished. So it means that your prayer is as powerful as it is in line with the will of God. In John chapter 15, verse, verse, verse 1 to 7, Jesus tells us about the principle of, of, of abiding. He says, I am the branch. I am the vine, you are the branches, right? That the way you were made, you were made to depend. I, I don't think we have enough time to tease out the, um, the wiring of man, the creature of man. Man was made as a dependent creature. He's supposed to take his reference from God, right? He was made without a reference point. He was made without um, anything in the external being his reference point. His reference point is the image of God. He was made to fill a void, if you like, if you put it that way, or rather he was made with a void that only his reference point, only God can fill. He was made for another. There is a dependence, the same way that a branch cannot exist outside of a vine. Friends, you and I cannot exist individually. That's why, and scientists and psychologists have proven this, that Nobody can continue to remain alive without a sense of meaning, right? If everything in the world was absolutely perfect so that you had nothing to do, what they found out is that people will still stand up and find something to do because at the very foundation of all of us humans is the, is the acknowledgement that we were not made for nothing and we were not made just for a task. We were made for for a living relationship that is overflowingly satisfying and that flows out into a work, a will, a purpose on earth. Nobody can continue to live for too long who doesn't find meaning in life, who doesn't find purpose in life, right? Um, yeah, and how did we get here? when we said nobody, nobody was made without meaning in life. Talking about how we should depend on. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was just, I was saying that to explain John 15 verse seven, right? That that's what Jesus meant when he says that I'm the branch, I'm the vine, you are the branches. 
there is what he wants you to see is that there's a dependence dichotomy, right? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Any prayer that you're praying that is divorced from my will is not going to be effective, right? And in fact, he says, maybe we should, we should turn to it very briefly before we come back here. John chapter 15, verse 7, because this will help us understand what James is saying. He says, I'm the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear much fruit. Now, just in case you have maintained your Christian life by God's grace, that's a sign that you are bearing fruit. And that's a sign that you qualify for, for, for pruning in Jesus' eyes. And he says the thing that makes you qualified for pruning, that the word of God that comes to you week after week is what cleans you, right? Despite your imperfections. What I'm driving at in John chapter 15 here is the promise that comes with abiding, which we often overlook, right? He says that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So that the greatest promise, the greatest incentive, if you like, for abiding in Christ, meaning for subscribing to the wisdom of submission, which is the wisdom of Christ, the greatest incentive for that is that you would have a powerful life of prayer. He says that you will ask what you desire. Of course, it means that um, the process of abiding itself adjusts your desires. That process, if you have mastered it, adjust your desires so that a time comes when your desires are in alignment are in sync with the desires of God for your life right what this means and as challenging as it sounds we need to come to the word of God as open as it as it as it is to us and 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 read it plainly what this means is that when we look at our lives and we say xyzzz is is an unanswered prayer James can trace it to an abiding issue. And this introduces the question of, okay, why does God not always answer very quickly? And the answer is clear. It could be one of two things. On the positive side, I think both are positive, but on the more positive side, every time you come to God with a request, it's an opportunity for pruning. Because Jesus says that the one who is bearing fruit needs to be pruned. And you see, if, if you had all your needs <laughs> completely met very quickly, you will, not, you will not subscribe to the wisdom of submission. But the moment you need something desperately from God, that none of your human wisdom, human connections, human capacity can bring to pass, that only the intervention of God can bring to pass, that's part of what makes you willing to subscribe to the wisdom of God. So, it, so sometimes the delay is a pruning process. God is bringing you to the place where your desire is purified enough. You can find examples of this all through scripture. And the famous and most prominent example, in my opinion, is the story of Hannah. Right? As far as she was concerned, her biggest problem was that she didn't have kids. And that was just her desire in life. Just God give me kids. You know? And then everything that happened around her intensified that prayer, um, including Penina her fellow wife who was having kids and making fun of her with those kids. But you see, God wanted to purify that faith until, until that desire synced up with, the, with, with God's desire fully. And she realized that, wait a second, the priesthood of Eli has been rejected and God is seeking a priest. 
So, so beyond my need for a child, beyond my need for the pride that comes in showing that I'm also fertile, God needs a priest. And as soon as she came into alignment with that desire of God, it was only a matter of time before she got her child. So in a sense, God allowed that delay in prayer to accomplish his purpose. But also, apart from pruning, what James is telling us here is that every unanswered prayer is a, point, is a pointer to an abiding issue. And maybe sometimes the solution is to actually lay the prayer point aside and just abide, go back to the place of submission and see what Jesus says to you. I wanted to point those, those few things out quickly and hear your thoughts on it as well. What do you think? Okay, so I take that, I take the silence that it was quite clear. Okay, so that's the first challenging part. And I hope that that first challenging part has been resolved, right? That none of us was created for ourselves. Our lives don't make sense outside of God. As much sense as we try to make, make of it, it's going to end up being nonsense in the grand scheme of things. The only sense that our lives make is in dependence on Jesus, right? And it's only when we subscribe to that life of dependence and submission that we begin to enjoy the, the true pleasures of heaven. So that's the first challenge sorted, I hope. Feel free to write in the chat or raise your hand if you have a question or even an objection. The second challenge is start from verse four where it says adulterers and adulteresses. Now this is the language of marriage, right? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealous, jealously? Um, so very challenging. Like we said at the beginning, James is not writing to unbelievers, right? He's writing to believers. So he's saying that it's possible to be a believer but to be in a fight with God. So it's not just possible that you have a war inside of you or a war outside of you. That state of affairs is going to end up leading to a war with God. You know, have you met Christians who are <laughs> passively bitter towards God? Or it could even be that this is your experience. All of us go through it um, when we lose our focus, right? Uh, or not even when we lose our focus, when life really presses hard on, upon us, that <laughs> we can come to the place where we are passively bitter with God or passively ups, upset with God because of what we think that he, he should have done that he didn't do, right? Um, so that's like a mild level of enmity with God. But then there is the actual, um, if you like, arrogance or just tension or just opposition towards God itself. And so James has two, two points here. The first is friendship with the world. The second is enmity with God. Maybe we should start with the second one and try to pull them together. What does it mean here to you when he says enmity with God? Right? For a believer, what does that mean? We are not in right standing with God. Okay, what does right standing mean? The right standing is another big word, right? Yeah, when you're not in his will. Okay. Okay. 
what about not being in God's will puts you in opposition to God, puts you in conflict with God? But thank you. I think you, you've taken us far already, right? A good way to look at the question of enmity with God is to look at the question of friendship with the world. This is not the first place in scripture or in the New Testament where this concept is, is mentioned to believers. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, the apostle John says, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And this, this verse, verse 4, begins with the concept of um, adulterers and adulteresses, right? And ends with the concept of jealousy. So that gives you a picture into your makeup, right? The same way, if you look at the vine and the branches, a branch cannot practically belong to two vines at the same time. Right, And just like Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon, for example. As far as God is concerned, he cannot occupy your life with anything else. And by anything else, we mean anything that takes center stage, anything that, anything that influences your decision above, above God. So the concept of adulterers and adulteresses is that you and I are called into a union with God, a complete mingling, a complete becoming of one with God so that Anything else that we begin to hold on to, that we begin to love, that we begin to trust, right? Because this is part of what friendship with the world means, to begin to love certain things, begin to trust certain things. Because of the fact that our relationship with God is a marriage kind of relationship, it's a, it's a mingling, it's a union, it can be categorized as adultery, depending on your gender, adulterers and adulteresses, right? And he says that it's not the kind of thing that the spirit of God takes for granted. The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy. And perhaps he says, this is, James says, this is what the scripture says, right? So he's obviously quoting the Old Testament. And one of the clearer pictures, if you like, I wouldn't say clearest, but clearer pictures that matches that James might be quoting for is Genesis chapter six verse five where the bible says that god saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth and that every imagination of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually and it's it's the cycle of degradation that led to the flood because i made man for myself for this marriage union and relationship this fulfilling relationship with him but what he has become right is not compatible with what i've made him to be so it's actually better for us to destroy the whole thing and God sends the flood. You must, may, may have heard this quote said before that if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. If God is going to be Lord, so the way of, of the wisdom of heaven, which is the way of submission, it only works when there is total submission. We're going to see that in verse seven. It only works when there's complete surrender. Any partial halfway road is going to lead to a situation where God is not satisfied, you are not satisfied, and because of the nature of Satan himself, even Satan is not satisfied. The best of God is found in complete surrender. Right? Um, and so 1 John chapter 2, like I quoted earlier, shows us the tenets of friendship with the world. John says the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, 
and the pride of life. The reason why the lust of the eyes um, is classified as enmity with God is that it simply pulls you away from God, right? I mean, look at the world today. Everything that your eye sees, your eye begins to desire. No matter what it is that you have, right? Your eyes probably have probably seen something better than it. Than it. And so one of the things that the, that the loss of the eyes does to us is that it makes us lose our thankfulness. You know, somebody has a better house than you and you really desire it, right? Because you're, you have many good reasons for desiring it. But you complete, it makes you completely lose sight of the fact that you're actually in a house and in a good one for that matter. There's a reason why the Bible says that beware of covetousness. A man's life does not co consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's why advertising is such a multi-billion dollar industry because of the principle of the lust of the eyes. Anyone who allows, who allows the trend of life, the lust of, eyes, of the eyes, the beauty of life to become the foundation of their lives is going to eventually become an enemy of God because they will lose their thankfulness. There is no way you can be looking at the latest and the greatest and remain thankful for your place. And the thing is, this principle works at all levels of, of political and economic status, right? That there's no status in life that you get to that anything in life will satisfy you enough because nothing in life was built to satisfy you and you always find something more. So this is how the lust of the eyes makes you an enemy of God. It makes you lose your thankfulness and it's not something you can control, right? And then he talks about the lust of the flesh. Now, you see, the lust of the flesh is probably our strongest enemy, our, our most insidious enemy, right? Because the lust of the flesh stems from the practical desires of the flesh. Your flesh wants to eat. Your flesh wants to sleep, right? Your flesh wants to have sex. All of those desires are holy, in fact, they are neutral. They are, they are, if you like, they are godly. But it's a question of what operates them. Right? The same things that God made for the sustenance of your human life can come into competition with your relationship with God. Jesus says about everyone who's filled with the Spirit that there's, a there's supposed to be a spontaneity to your relationship with God. If you are here and you are in a romantic relationship or you have been in a romantic relationship, you realize that it is the spontaneity of that relationship that keeps the fire going right and um, if 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 that spontaneity is lost then the romance is lost right and that is what happens with us with the flesh because the holy spirit needs to have access into your into your person to be able to spontaneously bring you instructions to be able to spontaneously bring you prophetic words bring you direction bring you corrections right and so when he tells you fast, and that's a huge problem, or when he tells you pray, and that's a huge problem, or when he tells you wake up, and that's a huge problem, um, it diminishes the freshness of your relationship with the Spirit. And you see, the reason why freshness is important is that when it comes to the Spirit, the, the effectiveness of the Spirit is in its freshness. You know, there are some things that their effectiveness is in their fresh mode. I don't know if you have eaten fresh bread before and compared it with stale bread it is the same bread but the freshness is what makes it desirable it's what makes it powerful if you like and that's why jesus said that man was not meant to live by bread alone in fact that's what god said to the israelites that i know that you were tired of eating manna in the desert and if you think about it <laughs> I don't know if you've eaten indomie 
for one day, you edit it in the morning, you edit it in the evening, you edit it, then you edit it for two days, you're like, okay, it's Indomie. But then you eat it for, <laughs> for one week, one month, two weeks. The Israelites called it wretched manna at, <laughs> at some point because the Indomie you love so much, you, you can eat it to a point where it becomes wretched Indomie, right? No matter how rich it is. And that's what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. And God told them that, I actually allowed this to happen. And I wanted to teach you that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. There's supposed to be a freshness in your spirit every morning. You're supposed to have a desperation for that freshness, right? That freshness is supposed to be your daily bread. It's supposed to be your food. And if you, if you are the kind of believer that is controlled by the flesh, you're going to put that freshness in second place against the flesh. And that's what's going to put you into enmity with God. It means that you begin to pull away from the thing that gives you meaning and satisfaction and power. And, and John also talks about the pride of life. The biggest problem with the pride of life, which we're going to see subsequently, is that it diminishes your confidence in God and it places your confidence in things, right? Friends, it's very possible that our self-worth is tied to our ambition, is tied to our achievements. So, and it can be so subtle. That's the thing about the wisdom that is from the earth. It is so mingled with the earth, with the way the earth works, that you might be operating by it without even realizing that that's the case. That's the pride of life. It finds its, its root in achievement. And it, it has the capacity to take your confidence away from God and to place it on, sink, on sinking sand. You know, in 1 John chapter 2, when John gave his admonition, he concluded in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2 by saying that the world is passing away and the lost thereof. But anyone who does the will of God will abide forever. So James reminds us that God is a jealous God. They, and we are, even though we are tripart humans, we we're only made to be occupied by one influence, one spirit. And if God is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And that's why in verse 7, in verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. You can add to the humble there. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The reason God resists the proud is that sometimes, you know, in our relationship with God, there is no version of us, right, that is acceptable to God. There's no... Or, a different way to put that is to say, there's no version of us that is good enough that we still are not utterly dependent on God. Like right now, if you look at your life, you might say, okay, I have weaknesses here and there. So it's fine that God is my boss. But what happens when you become perfect, right? And let's say you have no weaknesses. He will still be your boss because he created you. There is no room for pride with God so that even in your perfection, when you have no sin, you are still indebted to him because of his love in creating you. Like the relationship ontologically is tilted in God's favor. He created you, right? He created you. Think of anything you create. There's no competition between you and your creation. And so our humility is not because we are weak. <laughs> yes, we are weak, but even if we were not weak, it's also it's still, the, when we stand before God, 
if it is God we are standing before, it should be our default posture. And you can see that the proof of the one who's living by the wisdom of heaven is that there's going to be a humility in their lives. Okay? That was a lot for just six verses. Do you have any thoughts on this? Any comments before we move on? Sorry, please, I asked, I dropped a question in the chat box. Yes, you have a question here, yeah. In every unanswered, if every unanswered prayer has an abiding issue, how do we practically abide, right? How do we abide practically? So this is what I've hinted at throughout this talk so far and what we're coming to right now, right? Which is, another way to phrase the question is, what is the cure for, for, for pride, essentially? Does that help in the fair care? Yes, it does, yes. Okay. Your voice is still very low, so not sure, but yeah. Mary, you have a question here. Can we also relate this verse four to marriage? Can you share what you were thinking here? I think it's something you just already touched on. I think I dropped it before you talked about it, so I'm okay. Okay, cool. So now the next section moves on to the Frekes question, right? Which is, if every, if every lack of answer to prayer, in a sense, can be traced to an abiding issue, then how do we practically abide, right? If the wisdom that is of the earth, the wisdom that is of this world is so insidious, if it is so covert that it can actually be the driving force of our lives without knowing, then how can we turn from it to the wisdom that is from heaven, the wisdom that produces the fruits that we expect? That's what J James turns to in verse 7 to verse 12. Can you read for us in the Frecker? Yes. Is my voice loud enough? Yes. <laughs> okay. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Where am I stopping, sorry? Verse 12. Verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Thank you. So, um, James is addressing the problem of pride here, right? Um, he's showing us the antidote to, um, to the life of pride, to the life of worldliness, to the worldly wisdom. Sometimes when we read verses like this, it's very easy for us to detach ourselves from it, except when we're really pressed and we're in a situation where it practically speaks to us. But like I've said before, never come to the word of God assuming that it's not talking about you. Even if you read about a villain in scripture, 
for example, you should try to understand how you could be that villain if not for the grace of God. And that's where grace is, becomes poured out to you. But to essentially any of us here who has an unanswered prayer in our lives, that we don't know why that prayer is unanswered, can benefit from what James is about to say. The cure to pride is to submit to God, right? And by pride here, he's referring to the sinful pride, that pride that does not depend on God or, well, if depend on God sounds too extreme, even though that's some people's experience, that pride that um, defers first to our own will before the will of God, right? He says the antidote to that is to submit to God. And then he says that after you have submitted to God, now notice that submission here is a willful thing. Humility, which is the antidote that Paul is or James is recommending, is not a gift of the spirit. It cannot be received by laying on of hands. It cannot be received by simply hearing the word, which we saw in chapter one. It must be put to practice, right? It must be exercised. So just in case I have a difficulty in my life that is not clearing up, the solution is submit to God. Submit to God. And he says, once you're able to do that, you can resist the devil. Um, that's so interesting, right? That, that the devil can flee because he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I personally believe that every temptation can be overcome if we are willing to submit to God enough. As long as we still have debates in our minds about the perfect will of God, you know, like some temptations can look strong and powerful, but when that clarity comes, when the divine reality of truth dawns on our hearts, Satan can flee. So just in case there's any situation around you that is orchestrated by Satan that is looking like it's a mountain, that's a mirage. Satan can flee. Not only can he be cast out, he can flee. He can actually leave your space and run away. But the amount of authority that you can exercise over temptation, over the enemy, is bound to your own submission to God. Nobody can exercise authority who is not first submitted to God. That's how the, that's how the realm of the spirit operates. It's a, it's a realm of order. It means that what submit to God means is that there are things in your life that you are going to do only because God said don't do or do, not because somebody can open a textbook and prove to you that this thing is sinful or this thing is wrong. There are many things that God will ask you to do that if you don't do them, you will not lose your salvation. There are many things that God will ask you to not do, right? That if you do them, you will still be saved. But what is, what is missing, or rather what is at stake, is rank, spiritual rank, spiritual authority, right? So submitting to God means that you come to a place where there are things in your life that you do only because God said. If somebody asks you, why are you doing this thing? You may not even have a Bible verse, but you know that God spoke to you. The Bible says about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, or yeah, is it? That the government shall be upon his shoulder. Right, and he shall be called Prince of Peace. 
So it means that the shoulder of Christ has the capacity to, 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 to bear government. And the question for you and I is, where is the government of your life? Is it on your shoulder or is it on his shoulder? Right? Because if the, if the government of your life is on his shoulder, he takes responsibility for so many things. So it's important that you and I take a step back and examine our submission. If authority is lacking in our lives, especially authority in prayer, because that's the promise of abiding. Remember that verse. The promise of abiding is that you ask what you desire and it will be granted unto you. If authority is lacking in our lives, let's leave the authority and focus on submission. Submitting to God. Submitting to God. And James says, this is not a process that is a one-off because he tells you first to submit to God and then he tells you to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there is a side of God that chases after the sinner and draws him to himself so much so that you and I cannot be here today if God did not draw us, right? But when it comes to authority with God, when it comes to power with God in prayer, God will not draw you into that. You will have to draw near to God. The Bible, when in, in, and the prophet Hosea, when he was summarizing the story of Jacob, he says he had, he had power with God. He had power with God. Of course, when you read such a scripture, you realize that it shouldn't be written like that, right? Because Jacob by no means won the fight. And it's very debatable that it was even a wrestling because if he was wrestling with the man all night and then at dawn, the man touched his tie and he started limping. So what then was happening all night? If a touch, right, could break his hip. But yet scripture says that he had power with God. And when Hosea was explaining what he meant by Jacob having power with God, um, let's see what he meant. Um, Hosea 12, he says he took his brother by the heel in the womb and in his strength, he struggled with God. That's what he means by he had power with God. He says, yes, he struggled with the angel. He wept. Do you see what it means to have power with God? The outworking of power with God. He wept and sought favor from him. So the power he had with God was a drawing power. He, 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 he held on to God. That's the power he had with God. The power he had with God was not that he compelled God to do what God didn't want to do. No. The power he had with God was that he, he knew how to hold on to God and throw himself at the mercy of God until there was a definite response from God. And God said to him, what is your name? What is your name? And so James is saying that if authority is lacking in our lives, if authority is lacking in our prayers, it's not time to be discouraged. It's time to draw near. There is the promise that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And the moment you begin to approach God, then it becomes obvious the filthiness that is in your hands because he is holy. One of the first things God does to you is that, you know, he begins to show you the things that you were avoiding when you did not need him, essentially. And this is what I was referring to when I talked about the pruning process, that part of why God delays the answers of, to prayer is that it's only when we are desperate and praying for something that we're willing to embrace pruning. So he allows us to run our lives until we are now finally desperate for something and we begin to press into him. And then he begins to show us our hands.
It says, cleanse your hands. So in case you are drawing near and nothing is happening, it's time to cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so he, he shows us that the lack of faith can be traced to an impurity of heart, meaning that the heart is trusting something else. And we've looked at what it means, the pride of life, to trust in something else. Maybe the reason you want what you want is because of a misplaced confidence that you have not even been able to locate. <laughs> and then, just in case you do this too, and there's still no response, he says, lament. I, I hope you can see the intensity and the progression of the desire that moves the hand of God. Because the way James concludes this book is that he told us that Elijah was a man of like passion. Never forget that. So it is a progression of intensity. It's not a progression of discouragement. It's not a try and, and if it doesn't work, you're like, oh, why didn't it work? It's a progression of a cry for mercy. Just in case you have cleansed your hands and you have seen that I cannot do more. It says lament, mourn, and weep. He's not writing to unbelievers, friends. He's writing to believers. Why is James using this kind of strong language? There is, if you understand what we said at the beginning that Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. There is no branch without a vine. Like such relationship does not exist. The branch exists because of the vine. The branch um, exists through the vine. The, the branch exists by the vine. So imagine if the branch had a wheel, just like you and I have a wheel, and then one day it just wakes up and say, you know what, I'm going somewhere. You know, <laughs> like the foolishness of that choice is, is, is immeasurable, right? If you see yourself as one connected to a taproot, so that I woke up in the morning, I have 1,000 places to go to, but God, I need daily bread. I need a word from your spirit. And you see, one of the subtle ways that the pride of life mani manifests itself, right, is that you and I can wake up and go about our normal day without hearing from God. Or we just, <laughs> we just say our prayers. You know, I was reading a quote this morning that says that, Saying your prayers is different from praying. <laughs> because saying your prayers is a religious ritual. But praying is that desperate action that yearns for the presence of God. Says God, I cannot stand up from this place until your word drops. I know I'm intelligent. I know I have a PhD. I know I have money in my bank account. But there's something that your spirit must drop on my spirit that I need for the day ahead, for the journey ahead. That's, that's the humility of the life that knows that it is mingled with God. You, you are a branch. You are a branch. You are a branch. And may God open our eyes to see that we are a branch, to see that there's nothing that we need that is useful outside of him so that our pursuit can be for him and for him alone. And he tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Friends, this is a promise that God can respond and that the seeming delay is a pruning process and we should embrace it as such. So we have seen here that one of the ways in which pride manifests itself is in a prayerlessness or, or like a lack of desperation and hunger for God. Another way that pride manifests itself is in a judgmental spirit. Right. You know, it's very easy to judge people. 
And a lot of times people are confused about what the Bible says about judgment because if, if we have the mind of Christ, then we can judge all things. Okay. What Paul says is that we can judge all things, right? Not, not all people. It's only when God judges that we can even judge angels. And that's the marker that allows us to do that when God judges, because his judgment will become the reference point for our judging of angels. But in this day and time, the man who is spiritual can judge things and not other people. That's why Jesus says that anybody who says you fool is in danger of hellfire because you have concluded, because so someone can do something foolish and you can judge the thing that they did. You can discern the thing that they did by the spirit. But to judge the person and to condemn them, you have, <laughs> you have gone beyond your pay grade. You have gone beyond your boundary. I'm friends, I'm a preacher, and I know I've fallen into this trap many times, and I've seen God deal with me terribly because of, you know, you're, you're going to meet people in all kinds of states, right? They are going to come to you in all kinds of states, and it's very possible that your answer, your response will be without compassion, without mercy, because, you know, you might think, I've gone past this, you know, why is anybody in the world struggling with this thing? For example, you know, but God calls us to judge things, not people. It's much, much harder to judge things than to judge people. It's very easy to judge people. <laughs> in fact, you don't even need to try, actually. All of us here pass judgment every day. We went to cite somebody, especially, pardon me, but ladies, you know, like a lady knows way before the man, if, if the man is a good fit, before the man even <laughs> figures it out, you know, because like you, like you run your eyes one time, two times, and you just make up your mind about a few things. It's so easy to judge people. And that's, that's, that's wisdom of the earth. But we are called to judge things, not people. And so when God begins to humble, humble a man and humble us and bring us to the place where he can put real authority in our hands, he makes us compassionate people. Friends, the cry of my heart in this season is that God will, God will break my heart for the nations. He will break my heart for his people. He will fill me with a compassion for his people. That, that my progress with God will not, become, um, will not become the hindrance for other people. But it will become the reason why they can rise. Okay. We're running out of time, but I have time for to hear your thoughts on this. Um, any thoughts? or questions or contributions before we go to the final part. Okay. May I ask a question? Yeah, yeah Sammy. Yeah, um, regarding this, uh, it's been interesting. First of all, I want to appreciate the explanation regarding submission. Mm -hmm. um, regarding the submission, you know, um, let me ask this question. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we pray, our heart is burdened with a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. And um, many times the sense of urgency beclouds this, this process or this, this need, this process to, you know, to um, submission, like you said, you know, from the, all the way down to the lamenting and everything. Mm. So my question is this, um, 
it may sound too brash, but how can we stay in view, you know, above any sense of urgency? Especially this, 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 this strongly applies regarding intercession. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm praying, if I'm praying for my own self regarding my own issues, I, I, I may, I think I, I may be able to. I've seen myself actually, you know, submit into that process you said. But regarding interceding for people, especially when they've called you and you know told you about this certain need. And sometimes they may sound desperate how it's crushing to them, you know. And on one hand, it's even as if they are even putting a bit of this pressure on you, like, oh, I'm counting on you to pray for this team. Mm -hmm. Join me in prayers. And sometimes they even sound as if, you know, if you don't pray, things will spoil you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, how can we, you know, in that way, submit to God in that ecosystem atmosphere of prayer? You know, without with that sense of urgency, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, I I totally understand what you mean. There is a sense of haste that comes with certain prayer topics, right? Yeah. You know, I've been there practically where, you know, somebody begins to have a mental meltdown, and you know that if the Holy Ghost power does not come out right now, yeah, and stop things from going haywire, it's going to be a long, long, long road down mm -hmm. the line. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that haste can do to us is that it can it can it can break our faith, right? And that's the problem with haste. So as, as much as possible, the first step is always to remove that haste from your spirit. And the only way to accomplish that is what is Paul's recommendation. He says, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So in Ephesians, he also says, be filled with the Spirit. If we don't live the kind of life that is saturated with the Spirit of God, we'll just be filled with haste when those moments come. Yeah. And it is possible, right, that yes. we can be saturated with the Spirit of God, but then a situation comes that just shakes us out yeah. of that ground, right? And that's why Paul says that in everything, give thanks. Let that be the beginning of your prayer. Let it be the beginning of your prayer. And in my experience, when you start giving thanks, it doesn't take too long for you to realize what direction to pray. Because at the end of the day, the haste is a question of what's the direction, God? You know, what's the immediate direction? You can only pray, right? You cannot answer the prayer. Yes. You really want to pray, but the haste is not letting you focus your mind appropriately to, to to pray appropriately but but thanksgiving equips you quickly with the mind of the spirit mm. it equips you and that's why you know we're going to look at if we have time we're going to look at the will of god very briefly in scripture there's there are very few explicit places where the general will of god is given to believers um one of them is in, I think, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, where Paul says that the will of God is for you is that you yield yourselves to him. Mm -hmm. Just in case someone says, I don't know the will of God for my life, they can start from there, right? Yeah. Yield yourself to him. Um, and Paul tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 4, I think, verse 3, that the will of God for you is your sanctification. 
And then he tells us in First Thessalonians 5, verse 18, that in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God for you. So in case you have not gotten to a level in your growth, in your perception, where you can, where we can pick up the specifics, we know the generics. Mm. And it is from the generics that we can journey into the specifics. Um, it's not easy. It's a culture of being filled with the spirit and learning to give thanks. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think one thing that helps us is, and I'm just going to say this, but I won't have time to explain it. Maybe we can touch on it another time. If you find that situations shake your faith often, mm-hmm. that's a pointer that you need to maybe take a step back and examine your worldview, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, this may sound harsh, but please don't take it that way. But um, it's, it's okay that something happens and it completely just shakes your worldview. You cannot even pray as much as you should. But if that is a recurring theme, mm. it's an invitation for you to take a step back and examine where is my faith? You know, where is my confidence? Because I've discovered that in my own case, for my own life, and unnoticed a covert attachment to this world is what makes the events of this world more traumatic than they need to be. Mm-hmm. If it is true that I'm a Christian and if it is true that Jesus was raised from the dead, mm-hmm. then even death itself, you know, of course there's mourning involved in it, but it's not supposed to elicit an endless sorrow mm-hmm. or an endless bitterness towards God, except if what I believe is not true. You know? Um, so I found that many times it's an invitation to examine what am I holding on to? So that you come to a place where it's not as though you are stoic, but nothing on the external can shake your confidence mm. in God. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm grateful. Yeah. You're welcome. And sorry for the long answer. So let's wrap up. Oh, with... perfect. <laughs> yeah. Let's wrap up with verse 13 to verse 17. Come now, you will say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for, for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Thank you. Thank you. This chapter is full of so many challenging punchlines, right? We said earlier that even if you were perfect, you're still going to need to depend on God, right? And in verse 14 here, James James says one of the basic reasons you don't even know tomorrow right with like the this the smartest data scientist that can read big data and predict the future <laughs> does not know tomorrow and you know there's a kind of disposition that you would have about life that will completely delete the possibility of your of pride in your life one, one of the first elements of that disposition is that you're not all-knowing it means that what that simply means is that you can learn from around you. You can learn from everybody, right? You can even, of course, you can learn from scripture. It just makes you curious at the very least. 
it makes you humble and 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 someone who is willing to learn you know because some people go through a tough time and they say ah, i've tried this thing god did not answer case closed don't tell me about it if you if you realize the kind of world you live in that there's so much that you don't even know why have you closed the case on god as it were right and that's what james is trying to say that um one of the ways that the wisdom of this world the pride of life shows up itself in you and i is in the way that we make plans for the future without a reference to god and in verse 14 it tells us that there are some things you need to know about life one of it is that life is complex right i mean elon Musk made a 44 billion dollar bid for um for for twitter right as smart as elon Musk is he didn't realize that just two or three weeks later the stock market in the us will crash so significantly that if he had waited just two weeks, he can get a company for maybe 10% of that money, right? And because clearly <laughs> the market is not at the place where paying such a money for, for Twitter is, makes any kind of economic sense. So now he's trying to backpedal on the agreement that he signed. As rich as he is, as smart as he is, he has a weakness, he doesn't know tomorrow, right? There's a, there's a, there's a mystery about life and it's, it is only the will of God that demystifies life. Because as long as your life is based on your own plans and your own agenda, there's a big question mark in the whole thing, right? If it's based on your own wisdom, your own plans, your own agenda, the way you can arrange money, you want to buy a house in five years, and this is how you save it. You see, like such a plan in heaven's view, oh, that's why Jesus called him the rich fool, right? He says, I'm just going to throw in one factor into the variable, which is I'm going to demand your soul from you this night. And then let's see what now happens to everything that you planned. There's a mystery to life that only the will of God can be mystified. Right? Think about it. In the, in the, in the West, right, they have atomic bomb shelters because during the nuclear arms race of the 20th century, they realized that um, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction means that if there's a nuclear war everybody will be destroyed both the attacker and the defender and so they now built underground bunkers right um, that at least the government people can be inside to coordinate things before they die in such a in such a situation um it means that if there's a nuclear war <laughs> the safest place to be is in the bunker right and that's what it means with our god as well that if you look at the world and you say okay the world is complex and uncertain now, you don't need to be in uncertain times for you to come to this conclusion, right? You don't need to be living in a time where the stock market is crashing for you to come to this conclusion. This is the definition of the world after the fall that's lost its bearings. It is an uncertain world. Tomorrow cannot do all the work of yesterday, and you don't even know if that's going to happen. The safest place to be in this world, the safest place to be when you're planning is in the heart and at the center of the will of God. Apart from the will of God, friends, life is a mystery. If you want to get married to somebody, you are getting married to the person you are seeing today, and maybe you have weighed the pros and cons, and you're like, I can live with this, but there's a mystery of what the person can become. And that is why the only way to make that decision and be correct is in the will of God. And so James is saying that life is uncertain, right? 
It says that your life is like a vapor. Now, this is big English. If you're cooking before and you see steam that comes out from your pot, right? It says that's what your life is, that if you open the pot, the steam comes out. Before you close and open your eyes, the steam is gone. You cannot see. There's, there's, a, there's a brevity to life, you know? And there's also a frailty to life. There are some TV shows that says a thousand ways to die. Practically anything can kill a man. That's how frail life is. Practically anything can kill a man. Yes, even a virus that you cannot even see with your physical eyes can kill a man. There's a disposition to life that you have that pride will be erased from your, from your life. That pride will, pride will be erased from your relationship with God. Right? Um, and you will become a slave of the will of God. If we have a, an accurate understanding of life, we're going to realize that actually the will of God is not optional. <laughs> the will of God is not that thing you pray and say, ah, this person is the will of God, but this other one is the perfect will of God. So let me, you will just discover that if you are to do life and do it well, the will of God is not optional. It's actually an obligation. And just in case, right? You and I get along in life without committing to the will of God. When we stand before the judgment throne of Christ, we're going to realize that, that the verdict, the, the, the parameter is going to be the will of God. You know, Jesus told the parable of the son that says, I go, sir, and he didn't go. And the one that says, I'm not going. He said all kinds of things, but he went eventually. He says, he says the plumb line is which of them did the will. Like, it's such a it's such a severe plumb line, if you like. Like, he didn't even consider the niceness with which the first one said, no, I will go. His, his plumb line was, did you do the will of my father? One of the reasons why I like verse 15 is that, to me, I think it's, it's an evangelical tool because having, a, having the right lens of life is supposed to give us a language when we talk in the world, right? God willing, I will do this. It's an acknowledgement that I'm not sufficient. Right? It's an acknowledgement that the world, you know, the world is always asleep until something happens and then we realize, wait a second, we have actually been in a mess the whole time. But, but, the, but the believer who learns to introduce that language into their conversations, God willing, is awakening a dead world to the reality of the fact that this world is not going to remain forever. James concludes by saying that, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. When I was studying and preparing for this study, this verse was by far the most challenging because there's none of us that can come before these words, this verse, and then live with. The, the, the intention is not for you to come here and give yourself a pass mark because it says that if there is something that God has revealed to you, God may have told you stop watching football, for example, and you have analyzed it and you're like, football is not a sin. It doesn't make me lose my anointing. It doesn't make me lose my salvation. The question is not all of those things. The question is, is it the will of God? And do you know it? He says, if, if you knew it and you didn't do it, then you've missed the mark. It's a sin. And if we tie it back to our original call of, um, our original call of why our prayers are not answered or how much authority we wield in prayer, I think the burden I want to leave with you tonight is that we just want to cry to the Lord and say, Lord, we're here to humble ourselves and to submit to you completely. Um, we, we acknowledge that we are weak and we are frail. We acknowledge that without you, 
our lives have no meaning. Just in case your life is dry, James told us the way to solve that situation. Just, just draw near, lament, mourn, purify your heart, humble, do whatever it takes before God and tell him, tell him those words. Lord, I'm going into this decision, but I'm going with you. I'm going with you. You are the driver. You are him who leads me. And just trusting God to show you the places where he has commanded you and you know those things, but you have not followed through. You know, you have not let go. James's, um, James's proposal is that that may actually be a cause for unanswered prayers. And the answered prayers may not be happening now, but the answered prayers may be happening like in that summit situation, for example, when there's an emergency before you. And in that moment, you need your authority with God. You need your power with God, your favor with God to be able to provoke an immediate intervention. And so the cry of our hearts, um, my prayer for us is that God will not humble us. No, it's not a good thing when God humbles a man. But that we will humble ourselves before God. And that we will begin to see the fruit of what Jesus spoke about. Which is that our desires will begin to find expression. And that it will become a delight to do the will of God. You know. Jesus said, I, says, I, I come in the volume of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will. If God's will is for us to keep doing Bible study, we don't just do it, but we delight in it because delighting in it will help us to keep doing it, right? Even when we're tired. But we delight in it. We delight in God's will. We come to the place where it is our joy, where it is our bread. So that the fullness of what God has for us will break out in our midst. So that our world will know that we have a king. We have a God. And to summarize this as well, I would also like to say that it's the desire of my heart that as God adjusts our lens for life, that he will give us a thankful heart. You know, a heart that remembers that even though we were perfect, we will still be dependent on him for grace and for insight. A heart that realizes that all my prayers have not been answered. But if I stop judging by the lens of the pride of life or the lust of the eyes, then I can truly say that God has been good to me. So that in the midst of the pressure of our lives, we can always begin from that foundation that God is good to me. And from there, see the strength of God break out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.